Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. There once was a girl with red hair that talked with her friends who weren't there. Her author persisted, you'd say she resisted, and made a career from thin air. The end. Let's talk about Lucy Maud Montgomery. But first, let's drop her into history. 1908 began with the first ball drop on New Year's Eve in Times Square in New York. Later that year, New York law would make it illegal for women to smoke in public. Alpha Kappa Alpha, the first Greek sorority of black women, was established at Howard University. The fourth Modern Olympics opened in London. The song Take Me Out to the Ballpark got a copyright. The SOS distress signal became a worldwide standard. And the first Model T's were sold for $850. Empress Dowager Si Chi of China and Butch Cassidy died. Betty Davis, Rex Harrison, Ethel Merman, and the man who played the first Doctor Who, William Hartell, were born. And in 1908, Anne of Green Gables was first published, and its author, Lucy Maud Montgomery, introduces the world to a young redhead with a huge vocabulary. Hello, and welcome to the show. For any of you who might not be familiar with the subject of our show today, she's best known for a series of books which starts with Anne of Green Gables. It's the story of a red-headed 11-year-old orphan named Anne Shirley who gets sent to an elderly brother and sister by mistake because they were actually sending off for a boy to be a farmhand. She's just full of imagination and optimism and honestly changes every person she comes in contact with. And readers, people all over the world have Anne Shirley in their heart in a way that I few characters ever get in there. She becomes a part of people's being, I would say. Like, who else would I say even matches her? Laura Ingalls, Harry Potter, Elizabeth Bennet, maybe. So she's up there. So we may refer to Anne throughout the show. Anne of Green Gables is a classic. But before Anne and behind the scenes during Anne's creation, her author, of course, had a real life. So fans of Anne Shirley will see the similarities and the differences. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Lucy Maud, without an E, Montgomery was born on November 30th, 1874, in the village of Clifton on Prince Edward Island, Canada. If your Canadian geography is a little rusty, the province of Prince Edward Island is a small island wedged between the northern parts of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. I think it's only like 140 miles across. So this is the first only child, at least at this point, <laughs> the first <laughs> only child we've had in a while, Maud. As she was known, and as we'll call her from now on, Maud was descended from wealthy and notable people on both sides of her family. Her papa, who was known as Monty, was the oldest son of a very wealthy land-owning senator from a family who claimed to have connections to the nobility back in Scotland. I'm not buying that part 100%, but, you know, it is true. The family was Old Guard. That's with a capital O and a capital G. <laughs> they were some of the first British settlers to Prince Edward Island, and they had come after they were granted land for military service by the sovereign, not, shall we say, fleeing turbulent economic hardship. Do you see the difference? Yeah, um, there's a huge difference. These are the highest of the falluting. 
shall I say. And then Mama's family, Clara's family, was equally old guard, descended in their own way from greatness, and they had published authors and notable artists in their family tree. Her father was a wealthy man too, and the postmaster, and the justice of the peace. Also, he had this fishing empire and acres of apple orchards. So I guess a guy in this place has to wear a lot of hats. <laughs> I was just like, what did he do? He was just a hard worker and he liked to, you know, do as much as he could. I mean, it was a very small community. Well, Papa, Monty, seems to be some sort of a ne'er-do-well, I'm sorry to say. Um, Do you get that impression? (laughs) Oh, I totally did. He was a former ship captain who had sailed the world, which sounds really glamorous, but the rest of his career, it's just one failure after another. People sure found him charming and whatnot, but... So bad was his skill regarded in the family with business matters that his own father planned to leave all the family enterprise and property to one of his younger sons instead. Which he actually did, and Monty only got the same amount that his sisters got. Which was pretty uh, shameful for that time, I think. Oh, yeah, most definitely. His latest venture was a little mercantile, like a country general store that was right by his house. And on the strength of that... And his personal charm, more, <laughs> more his personal charm, I would say. 33-year-old Monty married 21-year-old Clara. And things happened fast, about nine months later. If you do the math, it comes out to a little under. <laughs> but you know what? These people and their inferences, their first babies are always late. It's like, no, I have a first baby who was more than three weeks early. Mm-hmm. My first child was was early as well. So, yeah. So there's always this sly little intimation at the beginning of all these biographies, like, well, I don't know if you're doing the math, you know, (laughs) come on, people, come on. So baby Maud was born immediately. Honey and baby, let's call her. The general store failed because that's his MO. Things fail when he touches them. And critical to the story at hand, Mama died when little Maud was only 21 months old of what was then called galloping consumption. And we would like to call it tuberculosis. I read a statistic, Susan and friends, Mm -hmm. that around this time, tuberculosis was responsible for one-seventh of all the deaths. Wow, that is crazy. Well, Monty and Clara had actually moved in with Clara's parents when she became sick and he became um, (laughs) unemployed, I guess. So leaving Maud there after the death of his wife, Clara, wasn't really a big deal. You know, she was already there. She had two grandparents that could take care of her. Let me go out, says Monty, and find work. Papa was still lurking around for four more years. And I get the sense that Grandma and Grandpa um, hated every second of his existence. They disapproved of their daughter's husband in the first place, I think. Mm -hmm. And then he couldn't seem to get it together. And it was just more and more irritating to them. And All over Maud's later books are cases where fathers are seen as nearly completely incapable of raising their children without a wife or at least a good housekeeper in the house. And so either that was common, you know, got to find a woman to take care of her or else Maud put her own experience in her books. It comes up a lot. I also think that that was pretty much the way it was for society at the time. I mean, the guys had no skills whatsoever in that area. But this guy had a skill. He was really charming. So don't you think he could have met another woman and married her and had her raise Maud? You know, that's the part that kind of gave a question mark in my head. You know, I can see how that would irritate grandma and grandpa now that you bring that up because, okay, he sure did not contribute any money to her Mm -hmm. upbringing. So he was just ditching 
his responsibility on his deceased wife's parents. That's like breathtaking chutzpah. Poor little Maude loved her father. She did. And she kind of saw him as a hero. I mean, in a visit, you don't like let all your bad parts of your personality come through. It's You can just be the Disneyland father. Well, mm-hmm. and then, of course, he'd leave. And then little Maude would have to swim around in that sea of disdain that her grandparents could let out after their unwelcome visitor left. Yeah. <laughs> so I can see their point, really. I can. I can see their point. And, and it's uncomfortable. And when, when Maude was six, Papa headed out to, quote, the West. The Wild West, I guess. In this case, Saskatchewan. Which I don't think I've ever said out loud before, Saskatchewan. I actually have a friend who lives in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Hi, Courtney. Have Courtney (laughs) go take some snap snap photos and send them. She she has. I've seen photos. We've been friends a long time. It's very um, flat. I'm always surprised. And there's a lot of snow. (laughs) Okay, so if, speaking of place in history, if you're following along with the timeline, this is almost exactly when all those Laura Ingalls Wilder pioneer stories were going on, just south of here, you know. So surely, surely there's opportunity, just waiting on the ground for a man in the Wild West. So he's off. Please do not let the door hit you, as far as Grandma (laughs) and Grandpa were concerned. Peace out. So this setup which might have been temporary, seems to have become permanent. (laughs) This kills me. You read all this about L.M. Montgomery was raised by two old people, which I literally object right now. Because (laughs) Grandma and Grandpa, I looked this up, they were in their mid-50s. You know, they had grown children, but they still had one at home. Yeah, These aren't decrepit, doddering, crazy people with big walking sticks that have dementia. These people are 55 years old. Yeah. So let's yeah. have less of the raised by old people, if you don't That's mind. right. Yeah. Older, they had raised all their their kids already, but those kids, they had raised in a very biblically strict household. And so if it worked for all their other kids, it's going to work for Maude. And that's the environment that she grew up in. Well, they're not very cuddly, that's for sure. You know, uh-uh. Grandpa, especially, he's a man of his time. He's not very involved in her upbringing. He's gruff and practical. And I have to tell you, he considers nobody's feelings. His position was this, and it wasn't uncommon. I'm the patriarch. I'm the boss of you. By you, put in every single member of his extended family. He was a noted storyteller. There's the creative part of him. Like everyone liked to come sit around the fire and have him spin a yarn, etc. But he's not the guy to tell you he loved you or anything like that. Mm-mm. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, in a story that Maud told of her childhood, at one point she was really sick with a respiratory, some kind of respiratory crud. Now, remember, this is a girl whose mother had died of tuberculosis. While she's all sweaty and she has a fever and exhausted from coughing, her grandfather comes in and says, eh, you'll probably be in your grave by spring. <laughs> Just seriously had no filter. He was totally get off my yard kind of guy. He would refer to her cousins and say, oh, if only you were like so-and-so, you'd be much Mm -hmm. better off. And so it really hurt her feelings. She could never be good enough for grandpa. But the fact is, and she found this out later, much later after she was all grown up, he said the same thing opposite to her cousin. Oh, well, if only you were like Maude, but alas, you have these big faults. Maude's a genius. Maude's an angel. If only you could be like Maude. But to Maude, she was a piece of dirt. It's just mm-hmm. not a good philosophy for building self-confidence. No, no, it's not. 
So Grandma herself was determined to raise her granddaughter to be a wife, a good household manager, and a good Christian woman. I mean, the end. Because there was nothing else to be, really. And there kind of wasn't, as far as she was concerned. And and chances were this would be the most helpful education that Maud could get. Certainly. Super good intentions there. But boys and girls on Prince Edward Island both went to school until the eighth grade. Eighth grade. There was 91% female literacy on Prince Edward Island at this time. Year-round school, six days a week. Um, so by the time Maud started school, she already knew how to read because she'd already taught herself just from reading at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she said she never remembered a time when she couldn't read. She didn't know how it happened. She thought she was just born being able to read. That's kind of how I learned to read, too. I don't remember learning to read, and I got to school knowing how. I Yeah, I totally, same way. I, I think can I kind taught of at that. least two of my three younger siblings, because my mom tells the story of how I came to her and said, okay, you got to teach this one because I'm tired of all this. <laughs> we made the older ones sit with the younger ones and read. It's cute, except they were trying to fill out those stupid reading time charts. Oh, did you kids? Uh, you didn't because you went Montessori. But it's a thing in elementary schools that kids have to chart how much time they read at home. And they're rewarded for filling out their chart and reaching a reading goal. Now, all of my kids would have exceeded that if I didn't have the timer on them. But you put a timer on them and it's a chore. And you're making reading a chore when it really isn't. It's a pleasure. I had this conversation with my mom, too. One of her friends who disdained reading and didn't like it had a father in a small town. He was like the most eminent man in the small town. and He wasn't going to have it. And so he promised her that he would buy her a car. And keep in mind, this is like 1960 or 61. Mm-hmm. Like, he was going to buy his teenage daughter a car, but she had to read. I think it was like a thousand books. And of course, I... <laughs> age 10 or 11, eyes lighted up, said, okay, I want that same deal. And my mom's like, nope. <laughs> N-O. <laughs> so back to Maud. Back to Maud. Right. Um, speaking of bookshelves, although in this case there was China in it and not books. Uh, yeah. One of her best friends, or should I say two of her best friends, were the left side glass door and right side glass door reflections of herself in one of those bookshelves. And the one on the left was called Katie Maurice. And the one on the right was called Lucy. So Katie Maurice should be familiar to anyone who's read the Anne books. Katie was actually her age, was Maud's age, where Lucy was an older woman. And Lucy was a widow. And she was full of really sad life stories. She had these whole biographies of these reflections written in her head. She didn't share it because she didn't think that her grandparents were imaginative enough to understand. (laughs) No. So even though Maude had imaginary friends, she had plenty of real-life friends, especially after she got to school. Cousins? I mean, come on. Yeah, there was a a lot of familial intermarrying. I'm not talking about in a gross way, but, you know, extended cousins marrying in this area. So she was related on both sides of her family with a huge chunk of the kid population. Except for there are two little boys around her age that boarded in the house so they could go to school for a few years. Isn't that interesting? That you would send your children to a town, I guess, you know, to be close to school when they couldn't walk it in. And she got along with them amazingly. She had playmates in the house, like real live flesh ones. Um, And then they just disappeared one day. Yeah, she wasn't allowed to say goodbye to them. They just vaporized. And I think her grandma was like, there would be a scene. I just wanted to... 
<laughs> that's right. That's true. <laughs> so Maud and friends were free to roam about the countryside as we kids in the 70s could, you know, you know, be home when the streetlights go on. In our case. And then when the sun looked like supper time, in their case, yeah. um, I think that's really good for the imagination. I do. And oh, I definitely. And she had a lot of uh, different landscapes to build her imagination from. Prince Edward Island is gorgeous. Fields and little woods and lush green areas. Visually, it must have been an amazing place to be a child. These names should sound familiar. Some of the places they roamed... A little walk through the woods was called Lover's Lane, and another was called the Haunted Woods. Not only was there nature, I mean, everywhere, the pictures will be so breathtaking, you won't be able to believe it. She and her little girlfriends created a story club where they'd meet up and write down and tell each other stories. That is a theme that appears not only in Anne of Green Gables, but in a self-contained story called The Story Girl. One of her teachers let her borrow a book called A Bad Boy's Diary by Little George, and it set off this lifelong project, really. And at about the age of nine, Maud started keeping a diary, but she wrote it in the style of that book, which I got chills when I read this because I used to read a book my grandma Roth had. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm talking, it was from 1890, 1880, and it was called Peck's Bad Boy and His Paw. And it was written in dialect and slang, just like Maud's book that she got from her teacher. What are the chances that both of us, I don't know, it just seems like a very obscure thing for me to have an emotional attachment to. Yeah. And that Maud did too. Like, um, let's see, from her book, A Bad Boy's Diary by Little George. And this is the kind of thing that had said, I don't think I'll ever marry though. Boys, what has sisters just knows too much. Them girls, when they come downstairs, ain't the same ones I see, cutting round in their wrappers with a little knob of hair on the back of their heads and their crimping pins all sticking out like horns. So so she's like writing as if she's a poorly educated <laughs> observer. Um, right. And so she began a diary written in the style of that book, Daily Happenings, Her Feelings. Once, a big storm caused the ship Marco Polo to wreck near her house along the coast. And all those exciting observations went in there, too. The captain boarded in their house, even. Yeah, oh, there was a lot of storytelling around the village because of that, because of that shipwreck. And you know what? I would love to read this diary. I would love to read it. I'd like to link you to it so you could read it, too. But alas, the super mature 14-year-old Maud burnt that journal up. <laughs> Here's another parallel with my life. I did the same exact thing. This kills me. I wrote an entire prequel to the Star Wars trilogy in a blue spiral notebook after Return of the Jedi. I think I was about 12 years old. And then I threw it away before Phantom Menace came out. Now, in my defense, I was in my 20s. You know what I mean? What yeah, you, you got to get rid of some things. But so wow. What I would not give to have that blue spiral notebook back to see how close I was. I never throw away your childhood fanfic. Don't. Uh. Just think about it. <laughs> I do have my childhood journals which I probably started, I don't know, age 10, I suppose. But I, I remember writing this story with my friend Elise, and she would write like a paragraph or two, and then I would write a paragraph or two. And it was about these two teenagers who fell in love, but then the girl had some incurable disease, but the boy had the exact matching blood type, so he could contribute to her healing <laughs> but it was a whole it was a whole story and it was just so hokey and it was before I'd even ever had a boyfriend so you know the the romance scenes were totally 
made up. That sounds just like <laughs> Anne and her friends trying to write those things about Lady Fitzgerald. Everything was so dramatic and like I know. knights in shining armor. And- you know, Maud was really dramatic too. Okay, she lived very close to the school. So for lunch, she would have to walk home and have her lunch because her grandmother would make it for her, which her grandmother thought was a really wonderful thing. But she felt like such an outsider because all the other kids would have brought their lunch to school. So she missed out on that social time. And then uh, her mo- grandmother was really proud of her wardrobe. She kept Maud dressed really nicely. But all the other kids got to come to school with no shoes on. And Maud was never allowed to. And she, she said in her journals that she was so humiliated. She felt like she was a crushed morsel of humanity. Oh, my goodness. Drama. <laughs> Yeah, she sounds like, I mean, very dramatic. So we do, luckily, have access to heavily edited journals from about the age of 14 on. And I will say that Maud, more than any other person we've covered, I mean, more even than Josephine Baker, which is saying (laughs) something, um, curated, a word I 100% hate, I can't think of a better one, she curated (laughs) carefully what she left behind her. She even rewrote her journals all together. Obviously, leaving things out. Her scrapbooks are amazing. They're kind of like Pinterest, I guess, really. Pictures that struck her, news clippings, poems, sort of an inspiration board. Oh, yeah. Um, Some of those have been digitized, at least. (laughs) They're not lost forever. So we got those, you know. Hmm, Nobody's burning them. So Maud did very well at school, mostly top of the class. Also, mostly neck and neck in friendly rivalry with a boy named Nate Lockhart. Hmm. There are some similarities, or maybe we'll just let them slide. I don't know. Should we mark out similarities every time they? Occur? I know there's so many of them. I, I maybe we shouldn't say them and let people who know the Anne stories pick them out. So Cavendish's first female teacher was hired. Ooh, and she was boarding with them. That was a kind of common occurrence. You know, in those days before a lot of hotels or anything, many respectable families would board, say, the teacher or the minister or something. It was po- it was totally common. Yeah, and they had a big enough house. I mean, they'd raised a, a, lot, a big family there, so. So Grandpa was literally in full-out war with this female school teacher all through the house. He hated the concept of there being a female teacher in the first place. And this female teacher, if you think about how brave you had to be to, like, get out of the box of being someone's wife right out of school, not being someone's daughter still at home taking care of the old folks, she's out. She's earning her living. She's a teacher. And that woman wasn't going to take his crap. And so the house was just full of noise and argument. And the teacher took all that out at school on Maud. I'm sorry to say. School kind of became unbearable for her since the teacher vented her feelings on Maud as a proxy. And so Papa out there in the Wild West had remarried. So technically... I guess if the form is correct, he could have her out to live with him, right? So Maud fantasized about that more and more. Home life was getting more and more fraught. You know, Grandpa was, what do I call him, a sarcastic yeller, I guess? The whole family was really fluent in sarcasm. It was heavy in that family. You sort of had to learn to manage him, and that's exhausting. So as Maud got into her teens, honestly, as young as 13, 14, Grandma started to clamp down on all of this gadding about, as she called it, in the woods and along the Lake of Shining Waters and in Lover's Lane, etc. It is one thing for children to do it, but a young lady has to protect her reputation. It is time to buckle down to your eventual fate 
of looking after people, you know, your future husband, children, grandparents. There seemed to be this feeling among her relatives that Maud should be grateful to have a home at all. <laughs> and if you were to read her journals, she's super bitter about this, by the way. So take this with a grain of salt. But she said that everyone started to disdain her and they didn't respect her because she was a woman and her cousins lorded it over her because they were boys and she was a girl. And she really felt like she started to become pushed into a little box at about this point. And her grandma, of course, said, well, you're becoming a handful. <laughs> yeah, but that just didn't perpetuate anything, right? I wonder if people like me who don't expect obedience from their children ever get handfuls. <gasps> I don't know. We're not in the teen years yet, and I'm no expert, but I'm just saying I haven't had a handful yet, but it could just oh, be our temperaments are nicely matched. I have no idea. There's Maybe, yeah. I didn't have too much of a handful with my daughters, but I'm having a handful with each of my sons at different ages, you know. Yeah. So you never know. And But I'm kind of pointing to the idea that it was a self-perpetuating handful in Maud's case. Like, mm-hmm. The more you clamp down, the more incentive you give her to not listen to you. Well. Maud had to be pulled out of school while that teacher stayed, even after the teacher moved to a different house to board. um, After about a year, a different lady teacher arrived, didn't stay at their house because she had got that telegram and (laughs) had the exact philosophy that would help Maud. Speaking of temperaments that seem to match, which later Maud would call kindred spirits. Over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, in Anne speak, in Anne Shirley yeah. speak, she encouraged Maud to believe in herself in a way that no one really had before. No one. And she worked hard to impress this teacher. And I would say her influence was what caused Maud to aspire to get a higher education. And that's uncommon enough for girls. Maybe she'd teach, at least that's how she got permission to go to school, <laughs> but maybe deep in her little heart she wanted to be a writer and that was like a little flame that was kindled by this lovely teacher that encouraged her (sighs) yeah she thought she might want to be a writer from a very early age she had even asked her grandmother that you know does she have any right to expect that she maybe would someday get money for this you know and grandma wasn't exactly encouraging of that particular occupation (laughs) i want to be a rock star I actually have one of her early poems. You ready? Yep. When the evening sun is setting quietly in the west, in a halo of rainbow glory, I sit me down to rest. I forget the present and the future. I live over the past once more as I see before me crowding the beautiful days of yore. This is kid poetry. When the first library opened in Cavendish, they had a literary society. And it was one of the things that her grandmother allowed her to go to. You know, she could do church stuff and she could do literary society stuff. So there she could read books with people and talk about books and listen to people present programs about books. So she was immersed in the literary world. She had writer on the brain. Okay, some news, some news. When she was 15, one dream of Maud's came true. Papa wanted her to come live with him and his new wife in Saskatchewan. She had a little brother, a little half-brother she'd never even met, and one on the way. And, like, her heart just leapt. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be together at last with my papa, my knight in shining armor, who could have saved me from all this treatment my whole life? 
You know, <laughs> Paul would never have treated me this way. You know, really? Would he? I don't know. He left. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, she had built her father up in her mind over the years as this guy that would save her from her stressful house, you know? So her paternal grandpa, Senator Montgomery, escorted her out on the train, which was a five-day journey to Prince Albert, which evidently Susan's friend Courtney knows well, <laughs> at that time of about a thousand people. And it kind of reminds me of Walnut Grove in that old little house on the prairie set, you know, from mm-hmm. the show in the seventies. Oh um, yeah. There, you know, there's no there there really. <laughs> and her new stepmother was bossy and mean and only 12 years older than she was. I did some math. I think Papa was 48. Her stepmom was about 27. And it's telling that almost the very first thing stepmama did when Maud got there was fire the hired girl because look who we have. She can do the work for free. Hmm. You know, there was like just friction. They did not like each other on first sight, you know. Maud adored her father and that was time that he wasn't paying attention to his wife when he was talking with her. It seems that she thought that Maud gave herself airs and considered herself better than everyone. You know what? She probably did. You know, she's related, if you think about this. How mm-hmm. she was brought up, she was constantly told, you're related to the first families. You are descended from nobility, respected in the town, old family. She'd been reading the classics at 12. You don't know what you got till you, it's gone, I guess. So you get to the frontier and you realize, oh, no. This reminds me, do you remember in Mansfield Park, Jane Austen's book, where Fanny Price <laughs> is raised in a noble household as the poor relation, and she is flat out the poor relation. Not respected, not treated very well, very similar to Maud, in fact, in real life. And then she gets sent back to her birth family for a little while, and she realizes, oh, my, you know, my proper place is not good. <laughs> Definitely. Maud regretted immediately, immediately that she'd come all this way to be an unpaid servant, kind of. But, you know, Papa did love her in his way, but mostly he just wanted to keep the peace in his house. It's disappointing. Yeah, well, it's going to bat for her even here. No, well, she did get to start school in Prince Albert and she did make some friends and she did go to church and she taught Sunday school. Her teacher, Mr. John Mustard, which for real. I know, for real. It was Mr. Mustard in the schoolroom. Um, he started to pay undue attention, I guess is a good way to put it, um, to Maud. And he said something like, do you think that our friendship will ever develop into anything else? And she's like, uh-uh, no, mm But that's just creepy, you know? So finally, finally, we get some good news. Now, either Maud had sent this in earlier from Cavendish or secretly submitted it from here in the West, but a copy of the Charlottetown paper, The Patriot, came in the mail, and there was one of her poems in it. It's as plain as day in print in the paper. She called it the proudest day of her life. That's so cool. What an exciting thing to happen. Well, Stabama could not keep a servant. Surprise. So she was made to stay home to help with the housework and the colicky baby half-brother and the worst part of school kept calling in the evenings. Old Mr. Mustard. Her name would have been Maud Mustard. I cannot. Anyway, (laughs) so she was out and about with friends and dudes and sundry at all hours of the evening. And I do not know if Papa knew he was expected to guard her reputation, but he did nothing of the sort, which sort of even disturbs me even from here. Mm Mm-hmm. So she had another piece printed in the local Prince Albert paper. This one, you can see her style of description coming out. She's very good at 
Um, and she always has been very good at nature. She was used to reading romantic poets and romantic stories and being very good at observing and recounting and describing how nature looked. And you'll see that all through the Anne books. But you know what? This year has sucked. That's just the fact, Jack. It's time to go. It's time to go. Finally, we get permission to go. Papa, just let her go. At least four train changes. And she had to find places to sleep every night in the towns. In an era where unchaperoned female meant fair game, sort of. And at least half the trip was fully through the Wild West. Like, okay, Susan, if you had a time machine and you would send your daughter, your teenage daughter, back in time, would you let her walk in the daylight from one end of Dodge City to the other or any gold rush town? No. And she'd have to, like, sleep in, like, rooms over saloons, that, that kind of hotel. She's 16 years old. Even now, you're right. No way. No way. So this is all very shocking to me. There's, I just don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, as far as I know, everyone got a message and no one met her at the station. Grandpa had overslept, he said later, but eventually she was met. This is Senator Grandpa, not raising you, Grandpa. And um, Senator Grandpa actually sent her on with chaperones once he got a hold of her. Yeah, he was in Ottawa. So, you know, it was a stopping point. It wasn't, yeah. And at the end of her journey, she's come home. People know she's coming home. No one met her at the train station. Let that sink in. Here she is sitting there waiting two hours at the train station. No one meets her. She got another train a little closer, waited around. Nobody's at that train station either, huh? So she found someone to take her in a wagon, not home. Actually, she decided like, okay, is that what's going to happen? She went to this family of cousins house, the Campbells, where she had always felt more like a member of a family than anybody else. And she spent a happy almost a week at their house before she came home. Like, well, I guess if no one's going to meet me, I feel no urgency to get home to you either. Well, I, and that, what a uh, good transition for her. Cause that was like the only family that she was a part of that was like, you know, a mother and a father and children. And they were, it was a good marriage and a good, strong family. So yeah, that compared to where she was and where she's going to go, that was a perfect transition. And you know what? This is kind of breaking my heart a little bit. It happened a lot earlier when she was little, but this particular aunt in this family was not particularly smart or well-read or educated or anything. But she remembers once when she was spending the night with her cousin, her girl cousin, and they're sleeping in the bed. She wasn't quite asleep when her aunt came in to check on the girls. And the aunt pulled the blankets up just really gently. And she put her hand on Maud's shoulder. And she said under her breath, oh, the dear little children. And went away. And Maud never, never forgot how that felt. And she never stopped aching and envying her cousin for having that. Even someone to just think of her as a dear little child. It broke Maud's heart that she didn't have it. Can you think about how sad that is? I know. I'm sitting here being very sad. I'm Yeah. Well, okay. On that lovely low point, (laughs) I think it might be time to take a little break. Woo. I hope things turn for the better after the break. back and Maude is back 
for all it's worth, back in Grandma and Grandpa McNeil's house. And Grandpa was dead set against more school for Maude. What for? To become a teacher? You know what? We saw his views on lady teachers. The rest of the family wasn't actually supportive of it either, because any money that was spent to send Maude to college was an inheritance that they wouldn't get. Well, and also the whole thing about when women married, they had to quit teaching. So in his viewpoint, it was like lighting money on fire Mm -hmm. to educate a woman past the eighth grade. So it was grandma who came to the rescue and gave her the money to go train as a teacher. And after a year of catching up, Mr. Mustard was not a good teacher. <laughs> and she had fallen significantly behind while she was messing around out there, ruining her reputation in Saskatchewan. So she caught up. She's writing, 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 studying. Maud was able to go away to Prince of Wales College in Charlottetown, which was the model for Queen's College in Anne of Green Gables. But Maud only had money for one year, so she would have to cram both years of the certificate course into one. This was her one shot. The pressure. The pressure. I wonder if they would let people do that now. I guess they, I guess you can get special dispensation to take a lot of credit hours, but I wouldn't do it. But anyway, here's the course of study. Math from algebra all the way up to trig. Roman history, chemistry, hygiene, school management, agriculture, horticulture, English, French, Latin, and Greek. And you would think that that alone would be enough to kill a person. Well, she also wrote for the school newspaper. And was in debating club. Yep. (laughs) And went skating and went to social activities and sporting activities. And I remember that energy. I had that energy in my late teens. She lived in a boarding house. The the dorms weren't a thing. So she lived in a boarding house with a girl named uh, Mary Campbell. And that the things that they did reminded me a lot of Anne of the Island, you know, and she's living with her college roommates. I think that's my favorite Anne. But, well, okay, Anne of Green okay. is my favorite. And then I think that Anne of the Island. I have to agree with you completely. Yeah. I'm delighted to agree with you completely. <laughs> <laughs> So Maud placed high in her class, and she spoke at graduation and blew everyone away with her talent at elocution. So that's what public speaking was called, mm-hmm. elocution. She made the papers. Again, her speech was considered, quote, a piece of perfect art. She passed her teacher license test. Of course she did. But no one from her family came to graduation. Mm-mm. Nobody kills me. All this extended family were related to half the island, and no one comes to graduation. Yeah, and it wasn't like that it was that far away. They could have made it. So Grandma did meet her at the station this time on the way home, which is better, though I have to tell you that bar is pretty low now. (laughs) (laughs) So still, remember who paid. You know what I mean? I guess we have to, you know, who paid, who defied Grandpa, so she's secretly awesome. Grandma is. Mm -hmm. You know what? Maybe she, maybe Grandpa didn't want Grandma to go to graduation. Maybe she, maybe she just picked her battles, I guess. Oh, oh yeah, that's entirely possible. Because she still has to live with him after, so. Mm, right. I guess. Okay, so now it was time to find a job. Again, Grandpa stood in the way. <laughs> I, this kills me. Maude would get interview requests. Okay, we've seen your results. You've placed very high. We would like to interview you. And Grandpa would forbid her the wagon so she couldn't make it to the interview. There's an end to that. That's mean. That's purposely mean. Oh, definitely. She did finally get a job. She took the Bitterford School, which had been so poorly taught by the last teacher that most of the kids had just stopped coming. So obviously, nobody's clamoring to get this job. She got the crumbs of the plum jobs, you know. So she started with just under 20 kids from about kindergarten age, primary is what they were called, that class, through eighth grade. 
And Maud was good at this, though it was such hard work and paid so little hourly if you parceled it out. I had this job where I worked almost 24 hours a day for three weeks at a time. And we sat down once with a calculator and worked at our hourly wage. And we just like astonished and threw away the paper. <laughs> so don't work it out. <laughs> no, no. Actually, didn't we work out how much time goes into each episode once? And it was such a staggering number. Yeah, that we can't think about it anymore. I know you just can't think about it. But she was able to raise that class of 20 to 60 kids. I mean, just because she was such a good teacher and so much better than the one before that word got around. And so the kids all all came back. 60 kids, one teacher. And she had to catch all these people up from their wasted previous year. And it counted against her if they didn't pass the test at the end of the year. Still that way here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was so unfair. But you know what? She just put her head down and did it. And she had um, she had time. I don't know where this time was to keep writing and was published several times for the glory. No money, you know. Exposure. Yeah. Exposure. <laughs> she was actually writing under the name Maud Cavendish, which is the town that she was from. Nice. Maud, no E, Cavendish. I know, very specifically no E. That's right. Maud wanted so badly to go to college. And she scrimped. And they do and did without, but still could not get enough together to enroll. And here she looks over at all her boy cousins, who not only have scholarships coming out of the woodwork, but they're fully funded by the family. The family was glad to pay for them to go to school. Mm-hmm. And she was going to have to do this, this teaching. Another year might have broken a lesser person, I have to tell you. She's faced with this uphill battle again. <laughs> But Maude was determined, and she was ready to put her nose back on that grindstone, however reluctantly, because she knew that's what she had to do to get to college. Eye on the prize. Eye on the prize. When Grandma stopped her one day during a visit at home and said, the first sentence did not come out well, I think. The first (laughs) sentence, she said, well, I'm sure I don't know why you want to go away to college. I don't understand it. But then you guys gave her the other half of the money. Da, da, da. So saved her an entire year of servitude for the pittance. Grandma said, I guess I've earned this myself with all the borders. It's my money and you can have it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she got around the whole grandpa not letting her use the cart thing. Grandma took her to college. I love it. So off to Halifax to co-educational Dalhousie University. Go Tigers. It looks like she took seven courses, including shorthand. That's practical. Mm -hmm. She found a mentor who encouraged her writing. So I'm glad about that. And soon she was making money from her writing. Contest entries at first, you know, essay contests. But real actual payments from real actual media outlets that wanted to publish also. She called it a big week, but I think dated it comes out to like a big month. But she won $5 for a letter writing contest, $5 for a short story in a children's magazine, and $12 for a poem that was published in a youth magazine. For a writer, that's, you know, that's a really good week because she was getting rejections. It's not like everything she submitted was accepted. She was getting more rejections than acceptances. But to finally get that first actual payment I've never forgotten when I did. I cried standing at my mailbox when it came. But uh, yeah, I'm sure she was just so excited because she had this goal that maybe she could be a self-sustaining professional writer, that that could be her career. She wrote a strongly worded defense of higher education for women in the Halifax Herald. Now, true, I have to say the middle part is nearly all statistics. 
<laughs> in this year, this many women. In this year, this many women. And very few women indeed graduated and got their BA. Very few women indeed. But mm-hmm. this is what Maud wrote at the end. A girl gets this out of her college course, that which will stand by her all her life, and future generations will call her blessed who handed down to them the clear insight, the broad sympathy with their fellow creatures, the energy of purpose, and the self-control that such women must transmit to those who come after her. Because people were saying, what's the point of educating a woman? And her Mm -hmm. point is, it makes her a better woman. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And even if she's going to be, you know, a mother and stay at home... An educated mother is going to raise more educated children, which is better for society. But Maude didn't have the money to continue at university. There was no one to give it to her this time. Grandma's out of money. Uh, So can you imagine? So you're leaving your goal behind. You're walking away to go back into an existence teaching that you hated with your whole being. It's like (laughs) if I had to go back to that job I hated that I left, by the way, it makes me, it makes me Sorry. break out in a cold sweat thinking about it. Mm-hmm. It's not good. Uh, her cousin, Edwin Simpson, got her his old teaching job when he left it. And I'm sorry to say that aside from a relationship with a great aunt who was a kindred spirit that she got to meet during this time, her experiences here get bleaker and bleaker. She's depressed about giving up her dream. I mean, of course she is. She's staying in this farmhouse with people who bathed in the spring, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, the water's frozen most of the year. What do you yeah. <laughs> so they're not house. doing a whole, they're not like bathing with ice cubes. Well, um, there was nothing going on in the town. The people were not very cultured. Maud's friends were moving on, studying or getting married. And the letters would come and she would just be like, God, what am I doing? And. Maud's mind was just twisting and turning and could not see any way out of her situation. She felt trapped. She stopped sleeping. She stopped writing. And you know what? Any of you out there have ever had even one person even believed in you, you know, thank your lucky stars. Or maybe stop the show a minute and send them a message. She had no one. And those things that you just said, those are all symptoms of clinical depression, which maybe it was situational because of her life, but... It was definitely a very dark and low point. And it was in this mental state that Ed Simpson, that cousin from before who'd got her the job, proposed to her. I mean, from his perspective, she was this tiny little attractive person from a good family. She had this glamour of travel in an era where women didn't really leave home and she'd been across the continent. She -hmm. was educated and she knew how to cook a man's dinner. Thanks to grandma's education, you know, perfection as far as he was concerned. (laughs) And I do want to point out he was her third cousin. So it wasn't like a first cousin situation. However, if it had been a first cousin situation, that was probably common. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she also had um, the fault of being a Presbyterian while he was a Baptist. (laughs) So that was that was a big deal. I will take your word for that. (laughs) Well, that was a big deal, I said. (laughs) Well, and so she accepted him, even though she didn't love him. And here's a quote from her journal at the time. I wanted love and protection. I was run down. I was inclined to take a dim view of my prospects. And now, of course, she felt a different kind of trapped almost immediately, like a prisoner, she wrote. Ed had another year at college, so he arranged matters, you know. I'm now the husbandly figure. He arranged matters. He got her a different teaching job where she boarded with a family named Laird. 
And what happens here? I I just don't know. I don't know if it's desperate grasping at happiness or what. But evidently, Mom, engaged, had some sort of torrid love affair with the son of the house, Herman, who was also engaged to another person. And her her uh, journal entries about this are not the prim Victorian that you imagine. I mean, she's talking about the kissing that they did in her room. I mean, that's a big deal. All these Another feelings are too much, kind of too complicated. Well, what can she do? Yes. Yeah. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Or here's another theory. Maybe it's all made up mm-hmm. in Mark's yeah. journal. She had been reading romantic literature since she could read. I don't know. Looking back with the, the people around her seemed to think that this was not a thing. But of course, they wouldn't know if it all took place in a secret bedroom when no one was home. Exactly. They were chill with each other when everybody was around, but as soon as the barn doors closed, <laughs> there was hay and there was rolling. No, that not that much rolling, I will say. Well, we'll really never know how much frosting's on that particular cake, honestly. How much no. is reality and how much is fiction? I have no idea. But then Grandpa died. Grandpa died back home, and I'm sorry to say this, but it was the most perfect timing ever. What could be more womanly, more dutiful, more socially acceptable than to move home and take care of grandma? And incidentally, really, right, full time. Not that society has to know that part. In his will, grandpa had left the property to one of his sons, but it stipulated that grandma could live there as long as she was able. So having Maud there made that time longer because she'd still be able also, she's not really that old. Was she in her 70s at this point? I think she might have been in her upper 60s. She's pretty self-sufficient at this point. So she got out of her engagement, out of her weird romantic entanglement, and some beneficial treatment from the locals who viewed her, okay, this is what a daughter of the house is supposed to do. So right. she's back. There was another benefit. The post office, remember, Grandpa was a postmaster, was in their house. Their house was the, po- was the post office. And so, I swear there was still an arrangement like that somewhere near my house in Rhode Island. I lived in the country in Rhode Island when we lived there. And I have been looking and looking online and I cannot find it. I swear there was a post office in someone's living room. And <sighs> if I could drive around, I bet I could find it again. Uh, in Bristol, Cumberland, I just don't know. It's killing me. Well, I grew up in a very little town in Connecticut called Ashford, and the uh, post office was actually probably about the size of your living room. It was super tiny, but it was a separate building all by itself. It's so cute. I guess if you live in Rhode Island and you're in the countryside near a little village called Hope, look around. It's somewhere. (laughs) Let us know. No kidding. So what this post office in the house meant for Maud was that she could send poems and stories out and get money in without anyone's tongue wagging about it. Rejection letter. You know, who cared? Rip that out of one envelope, slap it in another one, put it back out there. Who cares? Mm-hmm. The velocity of this, I think, really helps with her things getting published because she's playing the odds. You keep it mm-hmm. out there. You keep 30 things in circulation And eventually, one by one, they're going to leave you, right? And somebody's going to send you money for them. Yeah. And you know what? She had been reading um, magazines and and publications from all over because they came into the post office, her grandparents' house, um, and before they went to the people they were attended to for her whole life, she had been reading all these magazines. So she knew the market. She looked at it in a business perspective. It wasn't like she was just sending things out willy-nilly. 
she was writing things for specific publications because she knew that was the kind of material that they published. Super smart. To be a writer full time, that's what you still have to do. So the stability of this house with grandma, I think, looking back from here, really helped to heal her, though she was always prone for the rest of her life to these bouts of depression, like the black spots, like we talked about before, and stress headaches. But this particular minuscule part of her life was very stable, I think. So she got some exciting newspaper experience as a substitute proofreader at the Halifax Echo. So she was away from home for almost a year. And she sold so many stories during that time that for the first time in her life, her side gig was making more than her day job. I so love that. There, so there were some stirrings back home that Uncle John, who Grandpapa had left the house to, was gearing up to pry his mother, that's Grandma, out of the house so he could seize ownership of it. Incidentally, Grandpa left Maud not one red cent. Nothing. Nope. That's neither here nor there, I guess. But So it was time for Maud to swoop in back from Halifax and help grandma societal pressure and Maud's sort of disregard for the niceties of keeping dirty laundry in the family kept uncle John from kicking the two women out. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say, I think John was kind of an ass. Anyway, he had his eye on that property as soon as his dad died and he just couldn't wait for his own mother to die or move out so he could grab it. He never spoke to either of them again after he was thwarted. Mm -mm. No, Bye, Felicia. Yeah, well, and not only him, his whole Felicia family. Ugh. <laughs> no. And we're talking about their properties are butted up to each other. They're really close. So, uh, yeah, that's a little awkward. <laughs> a lot of awkward. So then what, to my wondering eyes, should appear? The new preacher caused female hearts to flutter. Ewan McDonald was this handsome, good-natured man with a steady job and ambition. You know what? Said Maud, she's going to win because this is obviously a contest. (laughs) Not only that, he had a Gaelic accent. (laughs) I mean, come on now, ladies. Uh, Yeah, he was very handsome. You know, dark hair, dimpled accent. Practically speaking, she was 29 years old. She wanted to have children eventually. And the moment grandma died, she'd be out of a home to live in. Really, because of Uncle John. So this seemed to be a good path. So two projects proceeding simultaneously, right? Right now. Number one. Operation Get Him to Propose. And then her second project was Get a Novel Published. She did try with one uh, called The Golden Carol, but it just didn't fly, so it was destroyed. And then she begins the thing that's going to put her down in history, Anne of Green Gables. The moment we've all been waiting for. So... The first project, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Maud to Ewan was sparkling, I guess I'd have to say. You know, I do think I think it became true love here at the beginning for him. His, mm-hmm. He started to become a little more outgoing, a little more fiery, a little more full of ambition. Okay, good. You know, check. Mm-hmm. That is going well. Project number one. The second one, the book, kind of seemed like, and did it seem this way to you, it seemed like it kind of just emerged out of her pen fully formed. And I have to say it's, it had had years of percolating this story. Yeah. Like a lot of writers, she kept a notebook that with just ideas of stories that might work, you know, all she needed was one sentence to write, you know, a short story. And all she needed was one sentence to write Anne of Green Gables. And it had been in her uh, idea book for a long time. An older couple sends off 
to adopt a boy and a girl comes instead, which was actually the situation that happened to one of her cousins. Her cousins were adopted by a couple who had sent off for two boys and got a boy and a girl instead. So there's some dispute. That girl claimed that she was the inspiration for Anne for her whole life. But Maude said, no, 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 not at all. The inspiration, did you, oh my gosh. When I read this, that's when I, I typed you, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> the inspiration for Anne, the moment that she was solidified in Maude's mind, is she was flipping through a magazine and she saw just an advertisement with a woman with her hair pulled up and down uh, her side and it looked like in a question mark. And just something about this woman just sparked Anne of Green Gables, the character. That woman was Evelyn Nesbitt. For those among you who don't know who she is, was sort of, shall we say, notorious. She was a model in New York and she was very young and she had a non-consensual relationship on her part with a very prominent man. Uh, When she was able to break that off, she did get married, but her husband killed that prominent man. And the Bowery Boys have an excellent episode. It's episode 188 that tells this entire story. And it is fascinating. But Ma didn't know the story. (laughs) She was just inspired by this one picture. And Evelyn Nesbitt was actually one of the very first Gibson girls. So there's a little background, surprising, on (laughs) the origin of what Anne looked like in Maude's head. When Maude was ready, it just flowed out. Maude was in a happy place for the first time, honestly, in a long time. Ten months to a year worth of Anne, Shirley, Marilla, Matthew, Diana, Gilbert Blythe on paper. You know, she kept those scrapbooks, that proto- Pinterest board her whole life, but I think her head was a scrapbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had always had an excellent memory. So yeah, I totally agree with you. She did use things in her life as inspiration for a lot of the things that, as we pointed out this far, um, that happened to Anne. Names of places, descriptions of nature, customs of the country, feelings, personalities. So was Maud Anne or vice versa? You know, no, she said no, Maud, her whole life. But someone that good at observation can certainly store away feelings or wishes, just like anything else, to draw on. They always say, write what you know. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that Emily Starr, who was a character she wrote in a shorter series much later, was more like Maud than Anne was. So everyone should read that, too. But, of course, there was a lot of overlap, and that's what makes Anne of Green Gables so good. Mm-hmm. More and, and even the first time that you read it, if you know Maud's story at all, it's almost like how she wished things had happened for her. Instead of being with these cold, older people, she gets into a very loving family. So um, a lot of it is the ideal of what Maud would have wanted for her own life. And, you know, one place that you can see Anne and Maud in the same place at the same time is when Anne, at the very beginning, screams, you don't want me because I'm not a boy, which up to now has been the theme of Maud's whole life. Mm -hmm. Had she been a boy, people would have educated her. Her grandpa would have paid her attention. She would have had a different life. So not to be too spoilery. You'll hear more about this at the end of the show, but you're going to hear a lot more about Anne of Green Gables from us before we're through. A lot more. So I just kind of want to leave Anne 
by reading you a list of the sort of the ways Anne of Green Gables has become a part of people and their lives. I have this book of essays on Anne. Educational essays, maybe even doctorate theses, I'm not sure, but I just want to read you the titles. Um, So here's some of them. Anne as Popular Romance, Green Gables and Geographical Identity, Cooking as a Path to Spiritual Maturity, Revisiting Domesticity and Nature in Anne of Green Gables, Gender and National Identity, The Shifting Use of Language, The Pollyanna Effect, Optimism as Power in Anne of Green Gables. So it's like you can look at it from any facet. It's a lot of things to a lot of people, but not quite yet. But yet, she has to be rejected by at least one, and perhaps as many as five publishers first. There's a story of her ditching it in a hat box for a while, but there doesn't seem to be time to have it having been in a hat box. Yeah, based on, you know, how long it would take to get to a publisher for them to read it and reject it. She has the same manuscript. It's not like she sent out five. She sent had one. So she sent it. And then it came back. And so she sent it again. You know. Okay, so yeah. we're going to leave Anne in the Postal Service right now. <laughs> and we're going to get back to Maud. So Ewan was about to leave for some advanced training in Scotland. See, he's ambitious. He's brave. And before he left, he proposed marriage and Maud accepted. Both objectives complete. You know, but they agreed to keep it a secret because she had the responsibility of her grandmother. And he'd be traveling and this and that. So... He's gone. Anne of Green Gables was published in June of 1908, and it was an instant bestseller. It went into its second printing within 20 days of the first printing. (laughs) That's shocking. It was reprinted almost every month for the next two years, and newspapers could not get enough. People could not get enough. Old Cavendish, I have to tell you, was soon overrun with visitors, tourists, a phenomenon that honestly has never stopped. No. So her publisher, you know, money, 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 was harrying her for sequels, stories, whatever. There was just immense pressure put upon her and she began to fall apart, I have to say. But Anne of Avonlea, the second in the series, came out less than a year after the original, in which Anne puts off school to take care of Marilla. So there's another echo of real life. So she wrote three more novels during this time period, over 30 published short stories, Notable men, the governor general of the whole of Canada, for example, were delighted to meet her. Noble ladies in England were buying copies of Maud's books for their friends. You guys. You know, but still she had such imposter syndrome. She never felt like she was good enough. And I was like, childhood can just shape you forever. Oh, yeah. Well, and she's kind of isolated, even though people are coming in and the letters are coming in. And she's reading things like Mark Twain said that Anne, the character, was the dearest and most lovable child in fiction since the immortal Alice. Oh, there's another tie into our show. And you know, they have the same birthday. (laughs) How about them apples? I did not realize that. Mark Twain. I mean, not the same year, obviously, but um, yeah. Yeah. So old Ewan, so full of promise when he left for Scotland, had a major dose of the same thing, kind of, when he, or the opposite of the same thing, I guess, the exact opposite. (laughs) Um, So he, the provincial minister, got to class over there in Scotland with the privileged sons of, you know, like old name Richington or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, <laughs> no, that's and this is a place he really wanted to go to. It was very prestigious. And this was going to be a major education for him, you know, a really 
important thing. But he fell apart so quickly that I wonder if it really was Maude that had been holding him together the whole time. He came back to Canada and accepted this kind of second-rate job. The ambition had just leaked out of him. And meanwhile, Maude was earning half as much per year as that governor general of Canada. <laughs> I mean, that's epic. And what was Maude supposed to do? She's not supposed to apologize for her success, Mm-mm. I guess. Well, Grandma died. The uncle seized the house, as you knew he would. And so it was time. It was time to go fulfill that engagement. The five-year-ago engagement that I kind of wonder if she was regretting at this point. So she began a new life. And it seems to me, from here, in modern day, that she could have taken all this cash and fame and made a life for herself on her own. But, you know, she wanted to be a mother. And she chose what was expected of her. Probably what was less scary. I'm not judging. Some people aren't most people aren't ready to just throw away all the familiar and just be like single, ready to mingle in Toronto or whatever. (laughs) That's not comfortable, right? It wasn't easy, certainly. And in June of 1911, at the age of 36, Maud married Ewan MacDonald. But in her journal, the phrases, I immediately wanted to be free, black cloud of despair, it was now too late, are in her journal on her wedding night. Ooh. This is probably a good place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens now that she is a missus. Okay, here we go. The McDonald's took a honeymoon to the British Islands. They were gone for 10 weeks, but it was back to the land of their ancestors or their relatives. So it must have been actually a wonderful trip. Ewan had taken a parish about 60 miles north of Toronto. So when they came back, they needed to move there to a house, a house that Maud had for herself for the very first time. It was her house of dreams. Well, and Maud's money, I have to say, smoothed away the imperfections in the house and garden <laughs> and really provided more comfort than a minister's salary would ever have been able to afford. Um, okay, so I did this math too. Ewan at the time was getting $700 a year. That's like $19,000 a year in today's money. Uh-huh. Maud yeah. was making 5500 a year, which means 150000 And okay, let's go back to Maude being a very good business person. When she got married, she kept her finances separate from her husband's. Very, very unusual for quite a long time. My parents did in the 60s, but they were still strange, according to my mom. (laughs) You know, and you said it afforded them all these luxuries, except a bathroom. That first house didn't have indoor plumbing. Not too many houses had indoor plumbing. I think this house was built in 06. Probably this was the vanguard of houses that had indoor plumbing. There's more bathrooms than this now, but at the time there was just the one upstairs mm-hmm. uh, off the main hallway. Houses a little tiny bit older than this one have obviously giant bathrooms made out of old bedrooms. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in there is when America in the Midwest started turning. And this is 1911, so it's about the right time. A house that was already built wouldn't have a bathroom. No. Oh my goodness. Well, money can fix a lot of that stuff. But it was super <laughs> strange to be on the mainland. I mean, she's not on PEI anymore. She's not a PEI girl. But by all accounts, she settled right in as a minister's wife. Do You know, she did all the social things, the charity parts of the church that I imagine that those ladies are still in charge of. Yes. I guess. 
<laughs> I have to say that I'm, <laughs> the the populace was super boggled that their shy preacher was married to this internationally famous woman. That was a little bit to get used to, but they all found her very, they called it condescending, but that didn't mean bad then. It meant like she came down from her pedestal willingly to hang out with us. It didn't mean that she was snooty. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. She was, she was very nice. She let, I honestly, a lot of her traits, I mean, classic extrovert. When she's around people, she seems to be energized and being a writer and being an extrovert is actually very difficult, but she was so disciplined that she would write for an hour every morning and then do her Mrs. McDonald ministered things during the rest of the day. So she wrote every single day. She had to. And guess what? At 37 years of age, Maud was expecting a baby. And although she was busier than ever, writing, churching, traveling to give speeches. So we're back to the old days of elocution being perfect art. I'm glad to hear it, actually. Um, public acclaim. She needs it. There didn't seem to be one of those blue periods that she'd had, or black periods. <laughs> they get darker than blue, I'll tell you. The more there was to do, the better, I think. Although she did have an unmarried cousin come in as housekeeper so she'd have more time to write. I do not think I have an unmarried cousin. <laughs> it's a bummer. I don't know. I actually, do I have an, un I do, I have one. Will count? she come and be an unpaid housekeeper for blue Oh, wages? no, no. No. See, that's the problem with modern day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so baby number one was born little chester the apple of his mama's eye and several years of marital happiness followed so this is a glorious period in her life everything's working everyone's happy everyone's healthy she's got a lot to do people look up to her she's got rewarding work of her own mm -hmm. 1914 brought a personal tragedy maude and ewan's second son died at birth and, of course, 1914 brought a worldwide tragedy, because that was the start of World War One. And you can see it pending, that depression is coming back. The only things that are saving her, again, hard work and writing. She finished the third book in the Anne series, the one that both Susan and I think is by far the best in the series, except for the first one. Uh, Anne of the Island, in which Anne goes to college and hangs out with her girlfriends. And I never understood why they made a cake and put it under a cushion and someone sat on it. <laughs> but anyway, a lovely story of freedom, and we really love it. She became active in the Red Cross, another theme that ends up in a lot of our shows. <laughs> but the war affected both Maude and her husband. Their third child's arrival came just at the time when world events and really their whole relationship were kind of spiraling out of control. So here's little Stuart, a wanted baby, but unfortunately, <laughs> he came at a really bad time. Her journals are getting darker, in total contrast to what's going on on the surface. This is a common theme that's going to happen the rest of her life. She's got it all together, as far as anyone knows, but all hell's breaking loose psychologically, I guess. Her favorite cousin... Her best girlfriend, uh, Freddie, died suddenly of the Spanish flu. Lots of people died of the Spanish flu. Ewan became as remote as the moon. He was feeling a lot of pressure because from the pulpit, he had to give speeches encouraging the young men to sign up and go join the war effort. And then they would die and he himself would have to go console the families, tell them their son had died, etc. And he was feeling more and more personal responsibility for having sent them to their doom. Natural enough, I guess, and he became catatonic at times, and doctors dosed him with barbiturates, you know, sedatives. He became convinced 
at one point that he was destined to go to hell. Uh, this was serious. He, he stopped talking. He stopped eating. He began to hear voices. Maud hid his condition from everyone. So that is so hard in a small town. And talk about how earlier she had to manage grandpa's moods and grandpa's situation. Okay, I guess that's good training because she had to manage his whole reputation and life. Yeah, he took a lot of vacations and um, went to speak at other churches or went, that's what she's saying to people, to cover things like a hospitalization in Boston for him because he's that far gone with his mental illness that he needed to be hospitalized. Anything that would get him sympathy for being away, oh no, he's being treated at a hospital, our poor preacher. We'll send him our, you know, yeah. lots of prayers and a lemon pie or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So also at this time, she got dragged through the courts. Okay, let's begin now. But I assure you, it goes for almost the whole decade. Um, she got dragged through the courts by her publisher, who had tricked her at the beginning and cheated her and bullied her. This publisher was as evil of a businessman as I have ever heard tell of. Honestly, he had taken advantage of her naivete to get her to sign away most of the rights for her early books for all reprints. And he held back and falsified the number of books that had been sold and therefore kept royalties that should have been hers and had been keeping them this whole time. He sold some film rights to Anne of Green Gables. It's 1919 right now, so it's a silent movie, you know. But Maude didn't even have an idea there was a movie until it was already being shown in America. So obviously she didn't get any money from that, although she did see it. She did see it. And um, she was super mad because there was a prominent feature of an American flag. <laughs> and all through the war, when criticized that her books didn't have any mention of the American conflict, she's like, I'm not writing about the American conflict. I'm writing <laughs> a Canadian story. And so the American flag in the silent movie, okay, number one, you didn't tell me. Number two, you kept all the money. And number three, there's an American flag in it. Like, come on. Okay, so you know how the inspiration for Anne in the first place, at least her looks, was Evelyn Nesbitt, who was embroiled in a scandal? Right, right. You know, Mary Minter, the actress who starred as Anne in the silent movie, was subject to a giant scandal also. The director of this movie was found dead. Dead. Somebody mm -hmm. had shot him. Mary Minter had been found to have had an affair with him. There were letters very scandalously worded letters found from her to him and her undergarments, a whole collection of them, cataloged, was in one of his closets. The scandal from this revelation, uh, I think her mother was the, the main suspect, although I don't think they ever proved that it was her mother who killed him. The scandal killed Mary Minter's career, caused all of the film of the original Anne of Green Gables silent film to be destroyed and Mary Minter's other work is gone too, burnt up. That's huge. That is huge. So by Mary Minter, um, there's your career. Hope you enjoyed that. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's horrible. I do know one of the things that um, her original publisher did was put together a collection of her stories and publish it without her knowledge and without giving her any compensation for it, but with her name on it. And for the rest of her life, she refuses. It's still listed in the books she's written, but she refused to acknowledge it as one of her books because she, it was such a horrible time in her life and she got nothing from it. 
Which one? Which collection was that? Do you know? Um. Yeah, it was. Was it Chronicles of Avonlea? Chronic. Yep, Chronicles <gasps> of Avonlea. I have Chronicles yeah. of Avonlea right here. Yep. So it took years to get clear, and Ewan was sued after a car crash. He was really prone to crashing. I mean, imagine if he'd been texting. No. So he was sued after a car crash for the stress of giving the other driver's wife sugar diabetes as a result of this accident. You guys, come on. That's a stretch. And, you know, we can laugh, but the guy won. The guy won. Couldn't believe it. But the joke's on him because Ewan couldn't pay the judgment and Maud's money was kept separate. Okay, let's go back to what a brilliant businesswoman she is. And I will tell you that guy, the fraudulent lawsuit guy, later died of diabetes. <laughs> couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> but the thing is, this community, after that lawsuit, they didn't really know about the publisher thing. That's all going on in the background. But this lawsuit that pits, you know, one parish against the other parish, one extended family against another, it really kind of made it untenable to be living here anymore. Uh, crazy. So the boys were growing up. And Chester went away to boarding school, followed later by his little brother. And the family, needing a change, they moved to Norville, which is yet another beautiful country village in Ontario. And Maud began work on Emily and New Moon, the most autobiographical of her books, as far as I'm concerned. And I like Emily better than Anne. Yes, I do. Anne's okay. inspiring. Anne's optimistic. But Emily seems more real to me. So, Well, and Emily was only three books. And, you know, Maude wrote it when she was much older. And I almost think it got filtered through real life experiences. And so maybe I recognize a little more realism in Emily than right. I in Anne. So that seems natural. So she's working on that. And life went on as before. You know, we're getting honors. We're going giving speeches. We're writing. We're worrying. And one author that I read referred to Maude's life at this time period as a house of cards. The stock market crash of 1929 wiped out all her reserves. And there were, as Maud said herself, quote, a series of blows. Maud attracted a stalker, a woman stalker, by the name of Isabel Anderson and had to fend her off with sternly worded letters. I mean, the lady would show up. I know you wanted to see me. She'd sit around crying. I know you don't love me and this and that. And it was very disturbing to me. And Maud really didn't have a whole lot of experience with yeah well i mean it wasn't anything that anybody would have expected you know having stalkers at the time wasn't a thing yeah I, yeah i don't know it was it was kind of unwanted attention how about that and i don't want to get too much into the sons because you know their descendants are still alive etc but let's just say that chester and stewart did not perform well in college you know what i think it had an air of entitlement about them that I saw. Her older son got a woman pregnant and they got married last minute. So it's like all this major serious soap opera drama going on behind this facade of successful writer and wife of minister. Chester, the oldest, frankly, never got his crap together. Uh, Stuart, who was always the sweet boy. I, there's a story of her writing and she was sad. Something had overwhelmed her. You think little kids don't know this, but she was sad. And her little boy went out in the garden, bought a bunch of flowers, and Stuart pushed them under the door. Stuart was her dude. I mean, Stuart was her, her boy. And he came around. He had that whole freshman crazy 
I'm yeah. drinking, I'm eating pizza. It's not pizza, but you know what I mean. In the middle of the night and hanging out with my dudes and slacking off. And he went through a period like that, but he came back and he became a doctor and he became a stand-up guy and really a guy she could lean upon. But Chester, honestly, I'm not going to go too much into Chester, but if you think <laughs> of something bad, there's Chester. So disappointing, I guess, um, at least at this period. Both of them are disappointing. Later, at, during this time period, another blow, as Maude would say, Ewan admitted himself into a sanatorium. And this time, the news got out. It was a mistake compounding his medicine. And the pharmacist almost killed him with rat poison that had been accidentally put into the capsules instead of what was supposed to go in, which was his medicine. There was a coldness in the village over a misunderstanding about his pay and a note that had been anonymously written to the elders of the church. They had to move. They had to quit. They had to move. Which is probably a very good idea because Ewan really couldn't be working any longer. They moved and they actually bought their first and last house because remember they were living in the church house before in 1935 and she was 61 years old. Isn't that something? Her first house that she owned was in when she was 61. They named it Journey's End. Here's these people that name their houses again. I kind of love it. You know, um, okay, so if anyone wants to look at it, it's at 210 Riverside Drive in Swansea, which is a suburb of Toronto. So I'm not sure if you look for Toronto or Swansea, but it's a fancy suburb, or at least it was then. And there are people living in it. It's not open to the public. Can you imagine? Don't knock on the door. I hope they know. I hope they know. I mean, there's a plaque. They got to know. Maybe when they moved in, they're like, what is going on? And then surely after 9,000 people have taken a picture of your house, you'll probably ask someone. Yeah. If we know down here in Kansas City, I'm sure people up there know. So I will tell you, we need a piece of good news. So I'll give you two. A talky version of Anna Green Gables came out. And Maude much preferred this to the silent version. And the actress who played Anne who actually changed her name to Anne Shirley. That's the power of the studio's publicity department right there. This Anne, this depiction, met with Maude's approval. And then she also said, Marilla was nothing as I meant her to be, but somehow she always should have been so. She approved of Marilla's portrayal. And I don't think she got any royalties for the second movie either, which is curious to me. So Maude was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. So she was knighted. Is that exciting? She was the first Canadian woman to have that happen to her. That's really cool. She was honored for, quote, making a real contribution to the cultural life of the empire in literature, art, music, or science. So I guess her name now would be Dame L.M. McDonald or Dame Maud McDonald OBE. I, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to guess. <laughs> Um, so right about this time, she participated in a group of essays about courageous women, women from history. So a proto-history chicks compilation, um, which I thought was really good. In her books, in her books, not in her life, her sunny, optimistic idealism, Anne is kind of like Annie. Tomorrow's another day. It'll be good. You know. <laughs> it's sort of gone out of fashion a little. This is the era of the Fitzgeralds and people being grim and Dorothy Parker. And so that's what you got going now. Sarcasm and um, wit are more in fashion. Anytime anyone succeeds, there's going to be detractors. But when Maude went back to the world of Anne, Shirley, with not... I wouldn't call them prequels and I wouldn't call them sequels. Is there a word like intercools? 
integral. Is there a word for that? I don't know. Somebody tell me. Star Wars Rogue One. They're like like a parallel, in the middle, connected story. Anyway. (laughs) There's probably actually a literary word for that that neither of us know. I know. So she went back in and filled in some timeline, let's just say. So 15 years after the last Anne book had come out, to great enthusiastic response, by the way, these books came out. Anne of Wendy Poplars. So that's Anne graduated from college, pre-marriage to Gilbert. Spoiler alert, sorry. And Anne of Ingleside is after the move from their house of dreams. But so there, out of fashion, because you know what? Maybe good old-fashioned storytelling never really goes out of fashion because the sales numbers on those books were epic. And I'm not sure about Anne of Ingleside, but Anne of Wendy Poplars got made into a movie. Almost immediately. And I struggled to find Wendy Poplars in audiobook, and I couldn't figure out why, because this was before I realized it was written out of sequence. So here I am, like, la, 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 going along. And I was like, Wendy Poplars vaporized from the face of the earth. I couldn't find it on audiobook anywhere. And it's because the rights, LibriVox doesn't have it, because they can't, because the copyright's still in effect. Right. So I get it now. So anyway. (laughs) So I do like Wendy Poplars. I do not like Ingleside. So if you're going to skip one, skip that one. (laughs) <laughs> I kind of I kind of start to lose it after um Aunt's House of Dreams. No, okay, thank you. It starts to get a little too um telenovela, I guess. Oh yeah, wasn't <laughs> there that was the one with the amnesia in it? It's just too much. Yeah. It's just too much. It was for me, I it I it lost its original charm, I guess, but hey, I wasn't a book buyer in the 1930s, so I don't count. <laughs> <laughs> So though Stuart had graduated from medical school, good boy, Chester was so problematic that Maud took to taking sedatives in order to sleep. You name it, he did it. On this G-rated show, I'm not giving any more details than he broke and kept breaking his parents' heart. So speaking of breaking, Maud fell down and broke her arm and couldn't write and was likely suffering. Oh, get this. This ties into another show so well, too. She was suffering side effects from a buildup of the sedatives in her body. So she's being poisoned by her prescription medicine. And we talked about that during the Zelda Fitzgerald episode. So you get admitted for one mental illness or diagnosed with one mental illness. And the medicine they give you builds up in your system, causes side effects until the chemicals made you act genuinely psychotic. And there you were then forever trapped. In the mental yeah. institution. I mean, she wasn't. Zelda was. But I'm just saying, Maud is falling victim. And Ewan, for years, how much of his erratic behavior was bromide poisoning? Yeah. Which doctors didn't even understand until, like, almost the 1960s. But she was dealing with an entirely different kind of mental illness in her husband and in herself, you know, her depression. Maud was taking care of him at home herself. And, you know, she, I I believe, and this is off the top of my head, she was taking some form of a barbiturate as an emergency panic medication since way back at the beginning, like of Anne of Green Gables time. She started to take, it was just, you know, it was just for emergencies. It was like a Xanax kind of thing. So she'd been on it for a very long time. I hate to even go down this path, but she became increasingly erratic. The maid came to work one day to find Maud standing in the yard staggering around as if she was drunk in the morning, burning a whole bunch of stuff, notes and whatnot, in the yard, hardly able to stand up. And get this journal entry, would you? My mind is gone. My life has been hell. 
Everything in the world I lived for is gone. I shall be driven to end my life. Oh my gosh. A month later from the fire in the yard hell day, Maud sent one last Anne book called The Blythes Are Quoted to her publisher. The book's not published until 2009, by the way. So if you missed it as a child, not surprised. (laughs) One last book on April 23rd. And I have to tell you this story, our story has a very abrupt end. The very next day from that postmark, Maud was found dead in her bed by the maid. Just like that. It was uh, April 24th, 1942, and she was 67 years old. The uh, cause of death was heart failure, but over the years and not until the early 2000s did the family admit that there was a note that had been left, um, which read in part, quote, what an end to a life in which I always tried to do my best in spite of my many mistakes. So it appears as if she really did commit suicide. This I'm ready. After what you just read, may God forgive me. And I hope everyone else will forgive me, even if they do not understand. My position is too awful to endure and nobody realizes it. Is it suicide? You know, Maud's doctor, who no more wanted to be associated with prescription medicine suicide than the next guy, <laughs> and her son, Stuart, also a doctor, they sure thought it was suicide. They kindly, I think, this could be one scenario, they kindly recorded her death as sudden pulmonary thrombosis and Stuart put the note in his pocket and then took away all the medicine on the nightstand. Mm -hmm. So one of the books I read makes a pretty good case, though, for this just being a scrap of paper that hadn't yet been transcribed into one of the real journals because that's what she used to do. She used to write, like, whatever was to hand, And she would number it like this is the next one. And Mm -hmm. evidently this note had a number on it in addition to the words. And no one really kind of understood what that was all about until people went through the journals later. I see. Now that's, she makes a good case for Mm -hmm. that. So it could just be an accidental overdose of the final bit of that, you know, that side effect poisoning. Right. Oh, true. True. Like she wanted to, but didn't. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. So, so it could go either way. It really could. I will tell you, she was suicidal. That's oh, yeah. Proof in the notes. But evidently, Stuart himself, the son, was so convinced his mother had killed herself uh, for his whole life that he didn't really tell too many people about that note. It was a family secret until, like, I think it was the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, it, it came out. Yeah. Maude Montgomery's funeral was well attended, and she was buried in the Cavendish Cemetery. So there's the end of Maude Montgomery's life, but certainly not her influence. People as diverse as Margaret Atwood, the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton, that was, Mindy Kaling, and Mark Twain. They're on record as being giant Anne Shirley fans. A Japanese woman named Hanako Muraoka translated Anne of Green Gables at great danger to herself during World War II into Japanese. It was just a gift that a Canadian friend had given her, and it became a phenomenon there. Anne of the Red Hair, as she's known, (laughs) has taken hold in Japan to the point where 25% of the visitors to Prince Edward Island for the purpose of Anne tourism are Japanese. How about that? 50 million copies of Anne of Green Gables are circulating in 20 languages, and so Anne's in the heart. Anne's in everybody's mind, but why do you think that is? 
is. Is it optimism? Is it like, um, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder just captured a moment in time, ideally, and people like to revisit it? Or the obstacles she overcame, or the minds that she changed, or a pathway to a different way to behave? I thought she would, she made such a great role model for girls who were a little quirky, who may have been teased in school for their, you know, the things that they said. They were a little odd. And Anne Shirley made it cool to be like that. That's part of it. I think so, too. And I think that you, the listeners, should send us what Anne means to you. I would be very, very interested to know. Why don't we do it on um, a Facebook post so everybody could read? Yeah. I think yeah. that's true. Okay, so we'll do that. We'll put it on Facebook. I'm very excited about that. Me too, because I'll tell you, um, Lucy Maud Montgomery is one of our highest requested um, subjects and has been since the very beginning. And it does seem like a bummer to realize that although all of this glory that she brought to the world was going on in the outside, the inner life was just not what it seemed. Like she was no. a pretty sad person. Mm-hmm. That yeah. I know. We want to leave on a happy note, and we can't. Didn't this happen recently? <laughs> Eleanor of Aquitaine, we have to, left on a bad note, too. Uh, alrighty. As you may or may not know, Netflix is going to drop on May 12th a new series about Anne of Green Gables. It is called Anne with an E. It is a very modern take on the classic story. Although still remaining a period drama, don't get me wrong, but it is very gritty and realistic. And we have both seen it and we are both so in love with it that we wanted to do an episode by episode recap of the new series. So we're going to use the same feed in your feed. There will be Anne with an E recap episode number. And that is us covering the differences between the movie and the book our impressions of how they did. These historical facts that you might have missed when you watch it. The reactions of the purists. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Which, oh my, I don't know. I tell you, and I'll tell you later during the recaps too, the 1980s Anne starring Megan Follows is the classic. It's the canon. It's the one that's in everybody's heart. And had I seen it when I was a young person, I might feel that way too. But compared to this new one, this new one hit me in a way the old one never has. Oh, yeah. It hit me right upside the head. I mean, like within the first 10 minutes of it, I was texting you like, oh, my God, this is so gritty. This is so dark. I love this so much. It's, yeah, it's very special. So beginning on May 12th, which is when we're going to drop the first episode, we will do one a week until they're all done. Okay. I'm super excited about that. Oh, me too. Oh my gosh. Once we decided to do this, I had a hard time staying focused on <laughs> on uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery because I was so excited. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's like, ah! Oh my gosh. Okay, now let's start with books. Okay, now I have to tell you, I say this more and more every time. And I think maybe I get to ramp it back or stop or something. But the number of books... I had to read for this episode. Given that Anne alone is an eight book series, we've mm -hmm. got Emily at three. The only book I didn't read, which is I, I should have read it because it's the only one of her books not set in um, Prince Edward Island at some point, is The Blue Castle. So I didn't read that one. But all the other books I read, I read poetry. I read biographies and novels 
and photo albums and essays and oh my goodness me. So obviously I have to distill that down to a manageable number. <laughs> okay. I have mine. I actually have my research books distilled down to three because I figured that all that other stuff was, I didn't have to say, go read it because it's pretty obvious. You should go read those books. <laughs> oh yeah. So in addition to all of her books, which I would start with Anne of Green Gables, mm-hmm. the series, if you're so inclined, although just like the West Wing, you know, you get to five, <laughs> season five, and then it kind of like, mm, I could stop mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to four when I started to feel that. I would say the trilogy, the first three Anna Green Gables, the the all three of the Emilies are definitely a must read. So, um, and then as to biographies, um, there are two. One is kind of told in the form of letters more than um, anything else. It's called Remembering Lucy Maud Montgomery by Alexandra Heilbrunn. And that is uh, interviews, reminiscences, and letters from people that knew her when she was alive. And then um, the biography that raises to the top is one by Mary Henley Rubio called Lucy Maud Montgomery, The Gift of Wings. That was actually my top one, too. I also liked Looking for Anne of Green Gables by Irene Gamble, which um, talks a lot about parallels between Anne and Maud and the discovery of Evelyn Nesmith. (laughs) Yeah, the photo on my cover is actually a Gibson girl. Yeah, that's right. When I got the book, I was like, what? Why is there a Gypsy girl on the cover of this? And then that's what it talks about. So there was a ton of pictures in this one, too. And I'm always down for books that have a lot of photographs in them. Speaking of pictures, the Lucy Maud Montgomery album, which seems to have been compiled by a man that loves, loves, loves Lucy Maud Montgomery, uh, like a fan is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's a collection of different aspects of her life with tons of pictures. It has travelogues. It has recipes. And it's um, put together by a man named Kevin McCabe. Awesome. And that has lots of pictures. And it's a big, fat one that would break a glass coffee table. And there's a, a very small book, and it is online, so we'll link you up, written by Maud Montgomery herself about her path to being a writer, and it's called The Alpine Path. So I would recommend reading that, too. There are some essay books, one I referred to before. It's called Anne with an E, a centennial study of Anne of Green Gables. There's contributors from all over the world kind of discussing the themes of Anne of Green Gables and putting them in a global context. People go down deep into the meaning of Anne of Green Gables in these essays, and I really liked reading them. And then there's this book, What Katie Read, Feminist Rereadings of Classic Stories for Girls by Shirley Foster and Judy Simons, who don't always take a sunny view of girls' literature. Mm -mm. And you can read her journals. They are available, all 10 of them. They slowly were published, but we think we're at a place where they're all out now. And I know you usually have a a kid book. I have a really cute one. So this one was Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author of Anne of Green Gables by Alexandra Wallner. It's really thorough and nice and has a big illustration on every page. I like that. There are so many books that you can get a hold of. So those are the ones that rise to the top. Yeah, definitely. And even online, you can fall into so many rabbit holes. Yeah, there's a lot of places to go. Speaking of places to go, you could also take a trip to Prince Edward Island. It is Anne Central there. Um, There's the Lucy Maud Montgomery birthplace. There's the Anne of Green Gables Museum. There's the Lucy Maud Montgomery 
Cavendish home, which was the site of her grandparents' home. It fell into disrepair and it's down, but now it's part of a park and you can see that. You can also go to her grave, which is usually very lovely um, landscaped. She's buried with Ewan and on her headstone, it actually says wife of Reverend Ewan. So I always thought that was interesting. The cemetery is right on like a crossroad. It's like there's cars zipping by you, not like 25, 50 feet away. Weird. Like you just think, oh, it's a sweet idyllic, like where Susan B. Anthony is, you know, this pilgrimage grave and it's not it's like on this busy highway <laughs> kind of like that cemetery that my son and i saw uh in the middle of a grocery store parking lot oh yeah exactly Life exactly like that if you want to see all the sites there is um a tourism pei.com and of green gables itinerary i think it's two mm-hmm. or three days and it tells you what to see in what order to maximize your you know travel time Um, And the hours that things are open and stuff. So we'll post that if you're up there. And they're actually not open all year. So you want to check that out. Yeah. Um, And and while you're there, you can see Anne and Gilbert, the musical. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find an actual, um, I found a Japanese version, which was weird. Um, But I did find the soundtrack on YouTube. So I can put that on there. Speaking (laughs) of Japan, there is a defunct, abandoned even, uh, amusement park called Canadian World in Japan. And I will link you to the Atlas Obscura article about Canadian World, where there is a replica of the Anne of Green Gables house, a replica of the brook, a replica of the Lake of Shining Waters. Yeah, the obsession is real. It's totally real. Although it's not in service anymore, which is yeah, sad. That's why I said it's, yeah. good, it's defunct. But there's a good article um, there, so we'll link you up to that. And then um, both her works, The Alpine Path, which is an autobiography, and her essay for Dalhousie College in 1896 that she wrote about the value of education to women have been digitized and they're online and you can read them in their entirety for free. So we'll link you to those. There is a very interesting essay written by Margaret Atwood, another very famous Canadian author, and actually really in uh, resurging popularity now because of the Hulu miniseries, The Handmaid's Tale. She wrote a beautiful essay about the importance of Anne of Green Gables, and we'll link you up to that because it was really nice. And um, in that essay book I spoke of before, Margaret Atwood actually compared and contrasted Anne with another redheaded heroine, Pippi Longstocking. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same essay. Yeah. And she talks about how the books really aren't about the transformation of Anne, but they're the transformation of Marilla. I believe it. I believe it. Uh-huh. And I believe me. When you see the new ones, that uh-huh. is clear as day. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. And the casting, you guys. Oh, my gosh. I thought Colleen Dewhurst was the best Marilla I can't I watched a bunch of different versions and she was the best to me but now after I've seen this I can't I'm sorry oh so good it is very good okay so a list of her works of course you can find anywhere but we'll link you to one so you don't have to search there is a site called Poem Hunter that has about a hundred of her poems on there um oh wait I was going to read that one poem if I had it I want to read it at the end 
No, it's not an end. Like, it's not a very sentimental one. Oh. Uh, no, it's not appropriate for the whole end of the... Let me see. Okay, here it is. Okay, why don't you read it now? Go ahead. Why not? It's our show. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want. I feel very much like taking its unholy perpetrators by the hair of their heads, if they have any hair, and dragging them around a few times, and then cutting them into small irregular pieces, and burying them in the depths of the blue sea. They're without form and void. Or at least the stuff they produce is. They're too lazy to hunt up rhymes, and that is all that is the matter with them. Oh, this is my. Her, this is her opinion of free verse poets. <laughs> 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 and you see, the rest of hers is like, you know, the chilly purple air is threaded through with silver from the rising moon afar, and from a gulf of clear, unfathomed blue in the southwest glimmers a great gold star. I mean, that's the usual run of poetry. And then yeah. you have that one, which just stuck out like a sore thumb. And I thought, well, now something's mad. It's emo mod. It's not playing. That's funny. Uh, um, let's see. What else do I have? Oh, you know what? Guess what else I found online in its entirety? Both what? mods, Georgie's Diary of a Bad Boy, and my Peck's Bad Boy and His Paw, full text at Gutenberg.org. Wahoo. If you're interested in a seriously weird diversion from a rabbit hole or whatever, uh, you know, whatever. I was just so shocked when I saw that come up. I thought now I thought I was the only one. <laughs> oh, um, the CBC had a, um, a video called Long Road to Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's about 10 minutes long. But under it, it has links to all kinds of different articles that they had commissioned or produced to go along with that, to go along with the Ellen Montgomery biography. So I am, um, that's like a good hub to find a lot of different stuff. Yep. And of course, ellenmontgomery.ca. Dot .ca, Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So as to movies, the 1919 one is gone, although you can find a later re-enactment of it, <laughs> which seems very curious, but whatever. Um, because the, they destroyed the studio, couldn't have that kind of immorality after that scandal with the, you know, the underpants and all that. So it's gone. Um, you can still see some still posters of it, though. The 1934 movie, though, is online. And of course, there's many interim movies, some of which starred Martin Sheen. Yeah, that was actually the last one. It was in 2016. It, it was on PBS not that long ago. Yeah. Um, this is my problem with most of the Anns is they're too pretty. And this one was very pretty and they had to draw her freckles on. I mean, she was a terrific actress, but um, it was distracting to me. But And then Martin Sheen, you know, I watch um, Grace and Frankie on Netflix and he's in that as one of the husbands. They're married, two husbands. And that's all I can see. I had the same problem. When we, well, when Sam Watterson was in something recently that we talked about, it's like, oh, that's all I can see is Saul. Well, and I have like a triple cognitive dissonance with that because, see, I know Martin Sheen from being the president in the West Wing. Then I see him in Grace and Frankie and I'm like, whoa, okay, okay, adjusting. Yeah. I see him in Anne of Green Gables and I was like, I can't handle it anymore it's too much to hold in one mind at the same time so i have to tell you i prefer the newest ones which none of you have seen unless you live in canada but the canon the classic the 80s version you can't really dislodge it from people's hearts you really cannot i saw it did you watch it in the 80s 
I didn't watch it in the 80s. I watched oh. it more recently than the 80s, which is why I think it didn't stick in my heart the way it does oh. in other people's. I thought, well, now, okay. They kept tacking on other versions as time went by. I think the last chapter in 2000. So it kept going on and on. But um, Megan Follows was so good. But again, she's very pretty. I, I've been spoiled, I think. But I, she'll always have a special place in my heart for that original one, though. And I, yeah. And I think a lot of people will have a hard time transitioning to the new Anne. Well, yeah, the new Anne is written and produced by the writer of Breaking Bad. So if that gives you any indication of what we're facing here. Yeah. It's, yeah. it doesn't pull any punches about realism. So. And yet it's still very charming. And sweet. And it makes you cry. I literally said the word wah out loud at one point. I, know. I think it might've been episode <laughs> five, but I was just like, wah. Oh my gosh, our episode five uh, recap is going to be very long, I think. We should, <laughs> maybe we should sit down with some uh, raspberry cordial and do I that. I was going to make raspberry cordial for today. <laughs> and then the raspberry cordial recipe I have has vodka in it, you know, Yeah. because you got yeah. to. But then I was like, well, I don't have time. So then I was like, well, Chambord, Chambord's raspberry. And then I didn't have, um, I don't want to like to drink straight Chambord. And so then I toyed with the idea of making cherry Kool-Aid, which is pretty close. <laughs> That's just silly. Oh my gosh. I do have a bottle of Chambord downstairs. Why didn't I not pour myself a little aperitif? Actually, I really only like it on ice cream. <laughs> well, so I have tea and a slice of lemon pie. I have tea as well. What kind of tea do you have? It is spearmint, which is not really appropriate. Mine is throat coat, which is kind of tastes like licorice. Mm. But it's what I drink whenever we record, actually, because my voice starts to go out and it needs all the help it can get. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the closest I could get to a good refreshment. But um, sorry. But for the recaps, especially one episode in particular, I promise I will make raspberry cordial. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Just before we close, I just find it so amazing that Maud Montgomery's public life and her literature could be so relentlessly sunny and optimistic when her journals reveal a life of despair and doubting herself. And I think if she'd been born at a time and a place with greater opportunities for women, her story might have turned out differently. And then we probably would never have met Anne of Green Gables. True. Do you think that's true? I completely agree. Yeah. So I would like to close with a quote from Emily of New Moon. This I pro Okay, actually, I'm going to end on a high note. So that's good. That's oh, good. thank goodness. <laughs> well, or at least a oh, note at last. Okay. It had always seemed to Emily, ever since she could remember, that she was very, very near to a world of wonderful beauty. Between it and herself hung only a thin curtain. She could never draw the curtain aside, but sometimes, just for a moment, a wind fluttered it, and then it was as if she caught a glimpse of the enchanting realm beyond, only a glimpse, and heard a note of unearthly music. And always, when the flash came to her, Emily felt that life was a wonderful, mysterious thing of persistent beauty. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, please, as usual, tell a few friends. Or if you're feeling especially productive today, please go leave a review for us over on iTunes. We had issued a challenge during the show to tell us in whatever way that you would like to what Anne of Green Gables has meant to you. You can do that on our Twitter at The History Chicks with an X or our Facebook page, obviously just called The History Chicks, or on Instagram. 
We would love to hear the impact that Anne of Green Gables has had on you. The closing song is Made of Stars by Xavier and Ophelia. Thank you.